Welcome back. This is episode three of the Struck Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett, and I'm joined here by lightning protection and aviation expert, Alan Hall. Alan, how you doing? Great, Dan. How are you? I'm doing well. The uh, quarantine is uh, in full force. I'm not leaving my home except for a little bit of exercise and some very haphazard uh, shopping, I guess. But uh, how are you guys holding up? Well, everybody's home, obviously. So the uh, college is being done online and the local public school should be switching over to some sort of quasi online classroom, hopefully next week. So the, yeah. the, the kids are going to start some sort of school, which would be good because they, they're not definitely not going back until earliest is May 4th still. So we're, we're about a month away from that. Yeah. And I was listening to another podcast this morning and uh, one of the co-hosts, she said, you know, my kids go to expensive private schools and she said, it's just, it's just not going well with the, the online learning. She's really not been, not been pleased with, she said, it's just, it's just a poor experience so far and disorganized and granted, I mean, this is not to point any fingers to anyone. This is a tough situation for teachers to grab all their stuff and suddenly go online. Right. Um, but you know, I think there's just, I think it's really just growing pains, but she was bringing that up. They were talking mm. about whether college students will get refunded or anyone will get any kind of tuition reimbursement. And she said, you know, like we understand the situation, but at the same time, not only are they not getting the in-person teaching, but they're also just not really getting a great experience in general. So. Yeah. The thing we noticed was the room and board obviously got waived for in this case, my son goes to Union College and they're on a trimester system. So they were just about to start their last trimester and the room and board has obviously been waiting because there's nobody on campus, but the, yeah. the curriculum part we're still paying for. And I think at least on the at the college level, it's probably a little bit better the, because they've been doing things like that for a while. A lot of, a lot of things are online there, but uh, in the public schools, it doesn't tend to be that way. So they got to change the way they deliver the curriculum and that that's a lot of work to do you know when you're yeah, up in front sure. of a board talking in front of 20 odd kids that's one way but if you're trying to give something audio visual presentable via zoom typically it's much much uh different format to present information so i can see why schools would be struggling with that and i know that's here what they've been doing is i think the teachers have been sending out essentially an email a day saying, here's some things you can read or here's some activities you can do. Uh, here's some research you can do just to keep everybody active. It's, it's not required. No one's getting graded on it, but it seems like the vast majority, I would say probably 80% plus of the local kids are actually doing it. And the parents seem to be overseeing a lot of that, obviously. But, you know, at least there's some learning going on. We're not just sitting at home watching youtube or whatever the kids are doing or playing or watching tiktok probably <laughs> yeah it's uh it's just hard i mean it everyone was just thrown for such a loop and there's just yeah. it's just gonna be growing pains you know and teachers work so hard they do it's just it's just a lot of transition i'm sure for them you know oh, sure all their curriculum just thrown into chaos right to change to change track right now well i'm curious to see how this is going to work too if they're going to try to bring all the kids online at the same time so you got 20 kids coming into a quote-unquote zoom classroom whatever that would look like yeah how that's gonna go but um we're we're telling our kids hey it's 
it's something they're going to have to just work through. It may not be the best situation, but at least you're getting some learning in and taking it for what it is. It's better than, than in the alternative right now. So have a positive attitude about it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so many layoffs. So speaking of which, the aviation yeah. industry is struggling right now. So it sounds like uh, based on a couple of news reports, they're serving, you know, or they're down about 80% yeah. of their typical traffic. So I don't know, what's your take on the, the, the current state of the airline industry? Well, I've, I've been reaching out to some of my acquaintances that uh, are in the airline industry and support the airline industry. Roughly what it sounds like now is in at least in the United States is 75 to 80 percent of the flights are essentially either shut down or empty, uh, depending on the airline. Uh, international flights have essentially stopped for the most part. A lot of airplanes have been parked across the country. I saw a list this morning of all the different places, and it was a long list. Uh, I think it was in the Washington Post where they had listed all the places that airplanes have been parked at. The, the consensus right now is that they haven't really – when 2001 – I'll give you the comparison. In 2001 and 9-11, when that happened – Obviously, they shut down all flights for several days in the United States. No airplanes. Everybody had just immediately land. So wherever they were is where they landed. And then when it picked back up again, there was a hesitancy for people to go traveling again. And the airlines really suffered. And they started putting airplanes in the desert, basically mothballing them, permanently mothballing them or, or selling them for scrap. That happened uh, just because it took a longer time for the airlines to recover. In this case, it looks like the airplanes are pretty much in flying shape. They're just parked somewhere. There's going to be some changes, though. The the A week ago, it would seem like all the airplanes are going to be back online pretty quickly. And then this week, the attitude changed somewhat, which is disappointing. But I think what they're talking about is that the domestic flights, at least in the United States, are going to pick up, up, pick up relatively quickly. It's going to be the international routes which means the bigger airplanes, the, I'm going to use Boeing as an example here, but like the 777, the 67, the 787, which do a lot of the long haul carrying and are the bigger airplanes are not going to be as popular uh, just because there's going to be fewer international routes. So those airplanes may get parked and the older ones may get parked permanently, which is disappointing, really disappointing. Yeah. So what what's, as far as Boeing's fleet goes, because, you know, for me as sort of a, someone new to this industry, yeah. how do they break down as far as, you know, all the call numbers, 727, 737, which ones are the ones that are mostly for domestic flights? 737. 737. So yeah. the max was going to be the big new workhorse if it, it hadn't is. had all of its issues. It, it yeah. still will be. Yeah, yeah. It'll be the workhorse. Yeah. It, it's mostly driven by, I think Southwest airlines is probably the largest purchaser, maybe Ryanair uh, mm-hmm. over in the UK. Is the largest purchaser of 737s, but it's such a workhorse. It's like the A319 and A320. They're such workhorse airplanes. They're great domestic airplanes. You can pack them pretty full. Um, they're about the right size and getting out to, in and out of a lot of different airports. They're, the engines have been upgraded over time, so they're really fuel efficient. Uh, those airplanes are going to be hard to replace with anything else. Those are the right planes for the right time. You're going to see a little more, I think, Based on fuel prices being so low, hopefully the airlines that have cash reserves are buying options on fuel. So they're buying fuel at 20, you know, probably a 75% discount right now with all the oil prices as low as they are. 
So what you do is you you say, hey, I'm going to buy a bunch of fuel at this price, uh, and it just saves you buying fuel when it's right back at normal normal prices. So they yeah. buy a lot. Southwest Airlines was notorious for doing that several years, probably 10, 15 years ago. They had bought a ton of fuel options when prices were right, and it saved them hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars um, a quarter. If, if The numbers were astounding because fuel prices are such a big driver yeah. in the airline's profitability. So when if they can gamble correctly on fuel prices, it, it just is a, is a huge revenue source for them. And Southwest had done a good job uh, many years ago. Now I wonder if other airlines have learned from that original Southwest experience that they have cash sitting around, uh, when are they going to start picking up some of those options and, and make themselves a little more profitable as they go forward? Obviously, it sounds like a lot of the European countries are going to be providing some funds to the airlines. I, British Airways is probably one. Obviously, in the United States, it's going to be an American Airlines, maybe United. Um, are all going to be looking. Southwest sounds like they're going to be asking for some money uh, to try to tie them over and keep the keep the employees quasi-paid. There's a lot of furloughs right now in the avi- aviation industry. Uh, hopefully they're short-lived. That's the goal of everybody can come back to work in a couple mm-hmm. of weeks here and get going, but we'll see how it plays out. It's going to be the next couple of weeks going to be crucial to see how long the financial people can keep the airlines running. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's a interesting problem because as you hear some of the outcries here in the U S about, you know, you're bailing out these companies, but like yeah. we need money in our pocket and yeah. that's true. But if you don't it's bail awful. out some of these companies, you don't get your job back and then you don't have long-term money. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, there's just, I mean, you there's got two problems, right? You got a lot. short-term pain and long-term pain and which one are you going to weight it towards? There is no proper answer when you're in the middle of this. It's all a guess. Anybody who tells you they're right is, <laughs> is, is, you know, that's just a complete guess in my opinion. It, just based on track records of other times we've been through similar situations, the outcomes have been substantially different than the initial predictions. So right. I, I'm not listening too hard to the early predictions here. Let's see how it plays out. The resiliency of, um, of these economies is such that I would be surprised there's going to be a lot of big changes in airlines. Obviously, airlines that were in trouble, like um, uh, what was the airplane company that was over in, and flying in the UK and Belfast in particular, closed just as the coronavirus thing started, uh, but they were in financial trouble before it. Mm-hmm. So the, the ones that are right on that edge, right on that bubble may go away, but the, the bigger airlines, British Airways is going nowhere. Yeah. Um, Right. They're, 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 those national airlines, Air France, is going nowhere. Those airlines are going to be around for a while. Yeah, for sure. So one of the uh, interesting, obviously within all these different industries, there's little niche industries that are maybe doing quite fine or just yep. carrying on and yeah. or maybe are really hitting their stride. A lot in the technology sector, obviously, like Zoom is yeah. one of them, like Slack is another. But Slack, yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, General Atomics, um, they released their new remotely piloted aircraft, the uh, Sky Guardian yep. RPA on April. So how do you, what's your take here on on some of these drone companies and, and are they a little more insulated from this? They are because they're serving a different market. They're serving a, uh, a, a military market primarily and then s- sort of a border patrol market uh, because of their, their drones are remotely piloted aircraft. 
and they're full of sensors and instrumentation, those they have really grown over the last 10 years, I'd say. So when I first remember hearing um, some noise out of uh, General Atomics, it was maybe it was 15 years ago now, uh, where they're starting to make drone type airplanes. They were fairly simple at the time and they've evolved a lot and they become uh, just because of the track record, they have had good service life and success doing the missions that they were designed for. So if, as, as those missions were successful, they, they pushed the envelope and kept developing and developing and developing, obviously. And now the airplanes, are, those RPAs is what General Atomics is calling it, are, are getting used sort of worldwide. Now, the thing about those aircraft is they're not small. They're not they're about the size of a private uh, business jet airplane. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're fairly good size airplanes, and they're flying in civilian airspace a lot of times. It isn't like they're flying over the like the Gulf of Mexico or the Atlantic Ocean or somewhere where uh, if they fall out of the sky, it doesn't matter. If they're flying over populated areas, they're having to qualify those aircraft for essentially FAA-type regulations where – uh, they're they're having to demonstrate that the aircraft can fly in icing conditions, that they can tolerate lightning strikes, that they can fly in pretty much any uh, environment that a typical piloted aircraft can fly in. Mm-hmm. That's a big draw. If they can make that leap, and I think they have. Global Hawk had done it a long time ago uh, in terms of Global Hawk tends to fly much, much higher than uh, the Predator or Sky Guardian airplanes do. But uh, if they can demonstrate that the aircraft is consistently able to stay in flight, even when it does, t- and those remotely piloted aircraft or drone aircraft have taken a number of lightning strikes. If you look back over the last ten years or so, they've been taking they've taken a lot of strikes. If they come back uh, and are a good working order, that helps sell the next one because when you lose them, they're not cheap either. So when you lose one, it's expensive. yeah, that size, yeah, that's yeah. Great. Yeah, the, the the power plants are expensive. All the electronics that are in, stuffed up inside the nose of them are expensive. Uh, so when you lose one, it it is a financial financially a lot of money. Uh, but in today's world, where they are flying all over the place, you cannot have them fall in some sub, sub populated civilian area. That would blow up the industry. I mean, that, that would be a real real negative in the industry. And then you'd find a lot of regulators saying essentially. What would happen is they they'd force them kind of like supersonic aircraft. They force them over the oceans um, to fly or or fly not in or fly in certain restricted areas. So they they got to get this right. And it sounds like General Atomics has been doing a lot of that work. The the press and PR for them has said they've they've done low level lightning testing on the on the aircraft. That's an interesting uh, little bit of a test. We do that on uh, private jets, big airplanes. It's part of the certification process for mainly uh, flight control systems, systems that if they went wrong, the airplane would would crash. Um, so you, in a in an airplane, what we call low-level aircraft test, uh, so it's a low-level test where you're actually applying lightning-like impulses into the aircraft and you're, you're monitoring where those impulses go and, and how much energy ends up on the electrical equipment inside the aircraft and you're, you're taking measurements inside of there. 
those tests run typically about two weeks or so to run. It's a, it's an intensive human intensive endeavor to, to, to run those tests. But at the end of those tests, you have a really good sense of, of what the lightning is going to do to the aircraft. And General Atomics has performed that test. I think the, the group down at NTS in Pittsfield, Mass, actually had performed that test. Uh, NTS has a lot of experience in that. I think they really did the mm-hmm. initial development for a lot of those tests. So if, that, if they had passed those tests, that means that the, the Sky Guardian is a pretty durable aircraft, um, which is good, which is what they should be doing. It's really what they should be doing. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit more about testing. Um, so, you know, if you're an engineer working on these projects and you get to this phase where you're like, okay, this thing needs to be adequately protected. Yeah. Where do they go? Like I know there's SAE documents out there. You know, there's three, um, you know, the, holy the most Trinity. prominent ones, the right. Holy Trinity. So uh, <laughs> could you quickly go over the three big SAE documents? You know, the ARP 5414B, the 5412 and the, 5416, right? Yes. So uh, there's, there's, that's the Holy Trinity. So 5412, 5414, and 5416. Uh, 5412 is those, the lightning environment, uh, which defines the amount of voltage or current that you would experience in a lightning strike and provides guidance about each of the waveforms that you would typically apply and where would you would apply them to the aircraft. 5414 is a zoning so, doc. Go ahead. Let me back you up. So 5412. Yep. Uh, when you're talking about waveforms, I mean, yeah, what does that mean specifically? Uh, the shape of the current or the shape of the voltage you would apply, and how, and in particular with the current, how much energy would be in that current pulse. So, if we're doing destructive testing, like we're applying, uh, uh, taking a putting a direct strike on an aircraft uh, wing wingtip or something like that. Okay. Uh, the fifty four twelve would tell you how much current, to, the peak current, and the amount of energy that would be in that current pulse is actually either three or four pulses that get applied during a, a single lightning test. It, it all happens at one time, even though there's three or four different, well, there's usually just three currents that are being applied simultaneously. And then there's another one added at the end, but there's, uh, it defines the, the, either the average current, the amount of Coulombs, which is a measure of, of current over time, or the action integral, which is a measure of basically instantaneous uh, energy or power that's, that's dissipated. Those things define uh, are in 5412 so that we have some consistency in the testing. Um, and it's also in, in today's world in the analytical side, in the modeling, you want to have defined waveforms, uh, current waveforms and voltage waveforms that you're applying either in a test environment or, or in a computational environment because you're, you're, really hoping the goal is that you can take your aircraft part or take your aircraft design to any of the different places that do testing around the world or analysis around the world and get the same result out. Okay. Uh, and that's, that's what drives the 5412 and that you're applying the right amount of energy and that in, and the energy is, is representative of what we have either measured and mostly measured on the ground or is representative of something's going to happen at flight. Right? So you don't want to apply too little, but you also don't want to apply way more than what would actually occur because you're going to put protection on the aircraft, which you don't need, which is just so, dead weight. 
Yeah. So is the fifty four twelve more for testing centers, or is it something an engineer needs to pick up? Uh, it's it's good for the engineer to pick up to get a sense of what's going on. So if you're just uh, an arm's length away from it, where you're just designing a part, you're not going to be testing it necessarily. Uh, it it's good knowledge to know, so you can understand what's going on when the the lightning person writes a test plan or shoots off a test report you have a sense of what they're talking about 5412 will do that there's also some environmental things in there where the data comes from and i think it's in the back end of that document where they have uh discussions of the different lightning uh, the rate of rise of the current the decay of the current the coulombs in the in the lightning strike all that sort of data that it's based on is thrown in the back of it too so it's it's sort of a has a research paperish kind of feel to the back end of it but the the heart from an engineer's standpoint are the requirements for the currents and voltage waveforms. That's that's where things matter. Gotcha. And then the fifty four fourteen. Fifty four fourteen is the lightning zoning document. That defines where we think lightning is going to initially attach to the aircraft and where lightning will continue to attach. So you have the initial attachment areas, what we call lightning zone 1, 1A, 1B. Lightning zone 1A is where lightning will likely initially attach, but with low hang on. Those tend to be places like the nose um, of the aircraft where there's an initial attachment, but it's not going to stay there longer as the aircraft moves. Um, yeah, going 500 speed. miles per hour. Yeah, yeah right. It's going to move toward the back of the airplane. So that's a lightning zone 1A. The zone lightning zone 1B would be like the tail cone where lightning would attach there and stay there for the whole duration of the lightning event. That's that's in the document. Lightning zone 2 is like the fuselage of the aircraft where the lightning channel will sweep as air, since the lightning channel stays stationary, but the aircraft moves forward and the lightning attaches along different parts of the fuselage okay. as the aircraft moves. And then lightning zone three is where we don't think lightning or there's a low probability of lightning attachment. So the definitions, and there's some nice pictures in there of different kinds of aircraft from turboprops like King Airs and Bonanzas to private jets like Citations uh, up right, to... I'm, I'm gonna- I'm going to chuckle at you said some, some nice pictures. I just got like this, uh, this image of like a, you know, just some, some real nice pictures, like a coloring book, but these <laughs> are know. obviously well, very, <laughs> very technical drawings, I'm sure, but they are technical drawings. So when I say Hel- nice helpful, pictures, it's helpful. It's helpful. Very helpful. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, uh, pictures, uh, says a thousand words. It's exactly what it is. If you try to describe what was going on there in words, it'd take you. Oh yeah. It'd be a mess. Be a yeah. Mess it, sure. It's hard. It's, it's hard to, when you see, especially if, if you've done lightning protection as long as some of us have, uh, when you see an airplane design, like, oh, yeah, well, lightning's going to attach here, it's going to attach there. But you try to describe it to somebody, and it's nearly impossible. Why do you say that? Well, because I've seen a lot of aircraft strikes. <laughs> That's yeah. why I say that. And this is, this is what we see, so here you go. Uh, yeah, so it's more of a graphical interface than a text interface. I think that's how I describe it. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's important. I mean, so much of this stuff is really hard to digest and then it is you're reading through these technical <laughs> papers and then yeah. you see a photo and you're like oh okay now it like all kind of comes full, full circle yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah and then the last one the 56 uh or 54, 54 16. yeah yeah 54 16 which is the testing document again it's uh the testing document has the procedures to run a number of tests on either components or full aircraft so it has the low-level aircraft test described in it, and there's actually two different ways of running that test, but they're in that document. And then 
testing of very specific components. Um, if you're testing a windshield, there's a test for non-conductive things like a windshield. There's testing for conductive components. Uh, there's testing describing if you're testing fuel tanks or whether there would be fuel uh, contained inside this container. So they, they, they have special mixtures, hydrogen oxygen mixtures they put behind the test article to simulate uh, fuel vapor. Uh, there's high voltage testing in there, which uh, you, testing radomes is the one I use it for the most part. Uh, and there's there's some other testing like uh, model tests. So if you have if you do have a new aircraft design model, new aircraft design or shape or configuration, if you want to try to figure out where lightning attaches to it, you can actually run a high voltage test on a model, and then record where the where the simulated lightning attaches to it, and that becomes part of your lightning zoning. Yeah, so the 5416 is sort of where the rubber meets the road in terms of test. That is a set of procedures that the FAA has blessed to say, yep, that's just how you do it. Uh, and But it relies upon 5414 to determine where what where the lightning zones are, and then 5412 for the energy and amplitudes of currents that are going to be applied. So they, they work the three docket, yeah, it's, it is like the Holy Trinity. They they work together to make a a lightning test or analysis. You have to you're going to rely on all three of those things. Yeah. So if you're a, a new engineer, you haven't, or you're on a new aircraft, like this is oh, stuff yeah. that you're going to have to review. You know, yeah. as your career just continues to progress. Yeah. And Absolutely, they what yeah. up, they update these whatever you three, four, or five years, something like yeah, that. Yeah, they're refreshed. I think they call them refreshed or or reissued. So they review them every couple of years to make sure the content is still good. All the SAE documents are tend to be that way. Well, they'll go back and look at them, and make sure that they're they haven't without having some major major typos, or the state of the art hasn't changed, or there's not some new technology that we need to incorporate yeah. in the documents. Yeah. So every couple of years they'll they'll get refreshed and renewed, so they get you for another eighty bucks, whatever it is per document. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then where do you feel like the cutoff is? So kind of going back to drones before we wrap up here. Yeah. Um, where do you feel like the cutoff is in most points where someone's just not going to probably, you know, put lighting protection onto new drone or a really small aircraft? Obviously, if it has human beings in it, if it's, even if it's a tiny one, you're going to want something in there. Right. But where do you feel like the cutoff is where someone's like, eh, we're just not going to bother? Uh, that's a good question. You know, when we started doing the, the UAVs 15, 20 years ago, the big push there was we don't need lightning protection. We're not going to get struck by lightning. We'll, we, we will, <laughs> this is a story because I was sitting in a meeting where this happened. What are you going to do about lightning protection? Well, we're not going to do anything about lightning protection. Well, why not? Why wouldn't you do that? He says, well, because we have uh, meteorologists that are sitting in the, in the command center and we're monitoring the weather and we're going to keep ourselves, I don't know, the number at the time, five miles away from any sort of thunderstorm event. And mm. yeah, sure. Okay. That sounds great, I suppose. But you just realize that that's not going to be very effective. Like the data has said, history has shown that when you say that, you you probably have lowered your probability of taking a lightning strike. You haven't eliminated it. All right. So let's, yeah. if you, and if you go back and look at the data, after that, because I was I was curious to see how that would all play out, and it played out like I thought it was going to play out, which was uh, one of two things: either they had to run the mission, and the mission involved flying through clouds. I mean, maybe there, and it was just like Apollo twelve. It's, it's, it's the same thing as Apollo twelve, which there wasn't any thunderstorm in the area, but you were it. You flew you flew into the charged clouds, and you initiated the lightning strike. So that was happening, and then the, that was the first one. The second one was. Um, 
uh, you can get struck in clear air, right? And everybody's seen that who's been on the ground long enough and been around thunderstorms where there's just a bolt out of the blue. Yeah, those things happen. And if you, you don't have to be in the cloud to get struck. Yeah. So both of those things were happening. It was taking down some of the drones. So then, then the realization hits that, that, that life cycle happens like, oh, ding. <laughs> we, we lost that aircraft. What's going on? Uh, mm-hmm. Well, maybe if you do some minimal lightning protection, this stuff won't happen. And then you start seeing everybody start to process this and do it. So I don't know if there's an area. I mean, it would have to be something relatively small. Obviously, if it fell out of the sky, no one would care about it, And it can't have anybody on it. I, I, I know there's yeah. the, the new regulations for Part 23 have, have sort of changed the mix here, which concerns me a little bit. And we'll see how it plays out. But to me... Some of the things we do for lightning protection are so intuitive just to make aircraft work that why wouldn't you do them? And I think that's where I come from is some of them just need to be done. Yeah, that makes sense. And obviously with aircraft causing strikes, the bigger they get, the, you know, the more that need intensifies for sure. You know, if you file a little DJI one, you know, it's 500 bucks. Right. Yeah, it's just going to get fried to a little crisp <laughs> if that were to happen. But yeah. that one's also a lot less likely to cause one itself. Because That's right. Of, of its it's size, based on so. size, right? It's based yeah. on size. The bigger they get, the more likely they're going to get struck. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Alan, uh, good talk today about, you know, tons of a uh, little deeper today on, on some of the technical aspects. But, you know, for like a young engineer listening, that's a lot of, a lot of technical stuff to wade through. So I think that's probably helpful as they try to finish their projects and, you know, sort out what they need to do to qualify these and get them out the door. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of homework. You got to do your homework in aerospace. No doubt about it. Absolutely. So if you're uh, new or if you're a recurring listener, thanks for being here. Uh, we appreciate it. So definitely subscribe. We're on iTunes. We're on Spotify. Anywhere you listen to podcasts, you can watch this uh, on video on YouTube. You can also catch um, clips. So if you're interested in just trying to grab a little quick soundbite that might help you with your project, we're going to be chopping all these up into just helpful, you know, quick hits. So you can come back, have an easy sort of, uh, I guess, user experience where if you need to grab, like, hey, like what's in the 5412, you can easily grab it out of our YouTube channel. So look forward to that. And as always, check out our website, weatherguardarrow.com. And if uh, you need anything, just uh, shoot us a message. Alan, another good episode. Appreciate yes. it. Thanks, Dan. Yep. And thank you. We'll see you next time.